My name is Dr. Ian Buchanan, author of King, a four-part leadership framework for black men. And you're listening to Black Men Sundays. It's a black man Sunday. Time to put all childish things away. I refuse to be the man I was yesterday. Gotta put my best foot forward and elevate. What's going on, everybody? This is Black Men Sundays. I'm your host, Corey Sylvester Murray, and we're talking about generational wealth. We're talking about finance and we're talking about business. And before we introduce today's guest, And before we introduce our Black Men Sunday Spotlight, I must let everybody know Black Men Sunday is hosting a turkey drive. We're trying to get turkeys for 50 plus families in Central Florida. If you want to donate, email me at Corey, C-O-R-I-E, at blackmensundays.com. I'll send you a link and you can make a donation. We're trying to make sure there's no families out there without a turkey this season, especially with this inflation. All right, my brother Eric from Hunts Vegas, who do you have for our Black Men Sunday Spotlight, my brother? Hey, thanks, Corey. I appreciate the intro, man. Man, today's spotlight because we're in football season. So I figured let's do something that's a little fun that we all use during football season. And that's the potato chip. You guys have to know that the potato chip was actually invented by a black brother by the name of George Crumb. Let me tell you, let me give you some little knowledge on that. Man, there are a few stories about the invention of the potato chip. The most reliable ones is all centered around this brother named George Crumb, a famous black chef in the 19th century who served the wealthiest Americans and eventually opened up his own widely successful restaurant. Now, born, he was George Speck around the year 1824 to a Native American mother and African-American father. Now, he worked as a hunter and guided and guide in Upper New York State. Now, during this time, his reputation was a, he was a cook who earned a position at the Moons Lake House Restaurant in Sartalaka Lake, where wealthy New England patrons built their summer camps. Now, he became famous for his unique specialties with, vengeance, with, with venison and wild game, and he was encouraged to continue experimenting in the kitchen. Now, no one is certain about exactly how the potato chip was invented, but some claim it was from Crumb's sister, who was working in the same restaurant. Either way, Crumb's experimenting uh, led to the refinement and popularization of the potato chip, which became a local and eventually a regional draw in all of the New England area. That's my spotlight today, Mr. George Crumb the invention of the potato chip, because hey, we all like them, right? They're like the ladies. You can't just stop with one. <laughs> yeah, or is that yeah, Pringles? Right. I think that's Pringles, isn't it? Hey, man, I don't eat potato chips, man. I'm trying to get my stomach down a little bit. But you mentioned venison and game. You know, yeah, you like, don't know about yeah, the mighty yeah, rattlers. The mighty rattlers gonna come and y'all gonna get snake bitten. We gonna and then we gonna grill out at your house in Hunts Vegas. What's up? Bring it on, bring it on. Definitely, man. Good to see you, man. I see the weather's looking good in Huntsville. Is it starting to cool down a little bit? Because it's still a little warm here, but we're cooling down in Orlando. Well, I'm not in Huntsville again. I'm at my mom's house in Talladega, which is about 80 miles east of Birmingham. 
So it's still a little cool here. The temperature here right now, last time I checked, like 68 degrees. But this morning got up to about 40 degrees this morning when we first woke up. So it was a little chilly. I think I had to turn the heat on a little bit because I did. I was sad I wasn't going to, but it was it was kind of chilly in there this morning. Um, so. Oh, man, I got to I got to relax because I thought it was chilly at my house. You know, mm-hmm. but I walked outside, cut my yard. It was about like 64, 65. I was like, what's a little nippy out here? You know, we used to yeah. like 85, 95. So right. you, know, you you talking about them 40s and all. So y'all yeah, got that's because my, my AC still on. It's on like 75 right now, too. So mm-hmm. but um, but yeah, man, I appreciate that spotlight, my brother. This is what we all here for. We're here for our special guests. We have Dr. Ian Buchanan on here. This is this brother's from East St. Louis, Illinois. I'm not going to lie. I thought East St. Louis was in Missouri. I got me a history lesson right before we got on this show. This brother's the CEO of the NIA Education Group. This brother's also the author of King, a four-part leadership framework for Black men. And you know, this Black Men Sunday, so we're going to have to have him crack that book open a little bit. Because Yeah, we're going to have to have you crack that book open a little bit because the thing about it is, this Black Men Sundays, we're trying to get the lessons learned. This brother here has also had teaching and leadership roles in school systems and nonprofits. This brother comes to us decorated. This brother was the teacher for American Principal of the Year Award, the Missouri Association of Secondary School Principals, Consummate Professional of the Year Award. Come on now. This brother worked in Memphis. This brother worked in the school district of University City, Missouri. He was the assistant superintendent of curriculum and instruction. So he's here. He's here for real today. So without further ado, Dr. Ian Buchanan, my brother, welcome to Black Men Sundays. How you doing? Good brothers. How we doing today, man? It's good to be here. I'm excited to have this conversation. Iron sharpens iron, brother. So I'm excited, man, to jump on in with these true real brothers today, man, on a Sunday. Yes, sir. This is not just a Sunday. It's a Black Men Sunday. Black Men Sunday. That's exactly. right. That's right. So we want to jump right into this, man. You know, uh, and one thing I forgot to mention, too, in the intro, this brother had teaching roles K through 12. We talking adult basic education, undergrad and graduate level. So, yeah, this brother comes to us highly regarded. But let's let's jump in right quick. We're talking about, you know, this Black Men's Sundays. We talk about, uh, you know, generational wealth, finance and business. So you're the CEO of the NIA Education Group. Educate us. What is this all about? NIA Education Group is, uh, well, first of all, uh, again, I'm honored to to have this conversation today. And so uh, NIA Education Group, so I have been doing the education thing since 1995. I started off as a high school uh, mathematics teacher, taught everything between algebra and calculus. Uh, and so I have been doing this education thing for a long time, working with this within the system, you know, graduate school, uh, uh, literacy coach, assistant superintendent. But I still felt like I was in a box and I really wasn't able to live out my true purpose in the education game. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to be real strategic, but I'm going to get out here and carve my own way and do uh, what I need to do for the benefit of black and brown kids, man. And so I started NIA Education Group. And the purpose of NIA Education Group is to help leaders, great leaders become their greatest leadership selves. And we do that to a couple through a couple of different ways. One you mentioned is my book. It's a leadership framework for black men. So I do a lot of leadership cultivation. I am a 
coach of teachers. So I work directly with teachers to help them get better. I do all kinds of talent management work for districts. And man, I'm just trying to change the game, man. I'm just trying to change the world. But the role that I was in was great, but it didn't allow me to really maximize my impact, man. So that's what I'm trying to do. Definitely. And your business, uh, Nia Education Group, you know, researching you, I realized, hey, your daughter's named Nia, HBCU yes, grad from Alabama, A&M, you know, it's Florida A&M on this side. So uh -huh. why did you, so why did you name the business after your daughter? Like, what was the impetus of that? Yeah, interesting question. I didn't name my business after my daughter. Uh, I named my business after a purpose. Uh, and she just happened to be in alignment with that purpose. And so Nia is a key Swahili term that means purpose. And so I wanted her to understand that there's a greater purpose for her, but also this business is a purpose-driven organization. And really our goal is two things. First and foremost, we are here to slash the tires of white supremacy. That's number one. Uh, well, actually number zero is to help us heal and get better. And so, uh, but we do that focus on developing leadership. And so uh, we are a purpose-driven organization. We're not all about the loop. We're about trying to change the game. And so Nia, that that term, that Kiswahili term reminds me that I have a deeper mission and a deeper vision. I got you. I got you, man. You know, I'm just trying to warm the bus up, get you comfortable. Yes, you know, you kind of took it to the collective versus individual. So I'm kind of like, oh, you ready to go there? We can go there right now, man. Because, you know, I was kind of just kind of warming the bus <laughs> up. But since since you kind of took it there, you know, I feel like in the black community, we're more. And my brother Eric mentioned it last week. You know, we're competitive with each other. Hey, man, I got the Gucci. I got the Louis. Man, I got the five. I got the million dollar house. Da -da 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 -da. But we don't collaborate enough as black men, as black women, as people of color. We don't collectively collaborate, you know, and I see a lot of times people are saying, you know, the people at the bottom of competition, the people at the top collaborate. So I'm collaborating, like I'm collaborating with you right now, but let's talk collective versus individual to collective impact, because I feel like as black people, we we're so competitive that it's it's really our downfall when we're talking about achieving generational wealth to get out of the generational poverty that we've been going through for decades. Yeah, I don't think it's about I don't know that there's anything wrong with competition. I think it's what you're competing for or what you're competing against. So I think part of our issue is that we're competing against each other when we should be competing to be the best at who we are so we can have the greater impact on whatever the greater good is. We have, we can agree align on a common set of goals. And I think it's really about being competitive to see how well you can use your gangster, professional or personal gangster in order to move us forward. And so I think that we just need a mind shift. It's not, it's not us against us. And I think many times we do that. And and we all have been guilty of that, you know, uh, whether it's, uh, yeah, I, I think we've all been guilty of that, but I think it's important for us to check each other and check ourselves. Okay. Okay. Definitely. And you're the author of King, a four-part leadership framework for black men. And I also looking you up, I also see that you also have a masterclass coming up, but let's talk about the book first. Like what was the impetus behind writing that book? Yeah, man. So uh, a couple of things. Y'all might not even know about this thing called hip hop, but it, just in case you do, there's this guy by the name of Andre 3000. And at one point he got on the stage and said, you already know the South got something to say. And so uh, that energy that people who are underrepresented need to have a voice. 
I think is one of the things that really inspired me to write this book. I was like, black men got something to say. There are too many times when our voice is not central. Somebody's writing on behalf of us, writing for us. But as a black man who is from the hood hood, who also has had a chance to experience some different things, I wanted to put something in the culture for us. And so that's really how the book came across. Plus, you know, like I'm no longer in my 30s. I'm no longer in my 40s. I'm in my 50s. And so I wanted to have something that was going to connect the uncles like myself to the nephews. And so that's really one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Definitely. And I know we're going to have to buy the book, but this Black Men Sunday. So just give us a little taste, you know, of, you know, give us a little taste of the book. Like give us maybe a tip or two from the book. Yeah. So King is a four part framework. And one of the things that teachers, especially elementary teachers like to do, they like to use these things called acronyms. I think that's what it's called, where every letter means something. And so K, know the king within. That is, have a deep sense of self. Number one, most important thing, I, inspire others to collective greatness. How can you coach, uh, model, uh, cheerlead, support others for the greater good? N is navigate to the north. That means have a, a, a value system, a set of morals, a set of beliefs that drives what you do. And then G is gravitate to the great, or as some might say, gravitate to the gangsters. And that means how do you surround yourself by the people who can push, challenge, uh, support you and help you reach that next level. And so the book really lays out strategies to do that. It talks about my experiences. It talks about quotes and reflective questions that allow you to actually personalize and operationalize the principles that I'm talking about. Great information, man. And let's let's transition more on the finance business side of things right now. Yes, sir. So, you know, because in the intro, I mentioned that, you know, you worked in the school system. Now, are you strictly the CEO of the NIA Education Group, or are you still in the system as well? So I love to tell people, uh, especially brothers who are doing this work, uh, I walked away from a job to pay more than 150, 150K. Yeah, I just I just walked away. Yeah. Um, that's because I wanted to bet on myself. And I did it very strategically. And I do understand that that's part of, you know, this generational wealth. So basically to answer your question, uh, I am a full-time entrepreneur, so I kill what I eat, or as they say, I kill for my meat. And so I've learned a lot as a as a evolving entrepreneur. This is only my I'm going into my third year as a person who's doing it all solo, with with the support, of course. But I'm I am a a full-time CEO of my own organization. Mm, wow, that's great information. That kind of leads to my next question. I have brothers that. You know, I have alliances with that are, you know, make good money, you know, healthy money, as they call it over, you know, 150 plus, they call it healthy money. You have a handsome salary is what they call it, actually. Um, but I have a brother where he basically has his own LLC, own nonprofit, has everything set up, but he has this phenomenal job, new position. He's like, man, you know what? I love what I do, but I feel like it's my purpose in life to quit this job and be the CEO of this business that he already has. It's already running. It's just not running at the level that he wants it to because he's not able to dedicate his full time to that. So what advice would you give for a brother like him and for other brothers like him in his situation as well? I don't, you know, I can, what I can do is share some of my steps First, I cultivated, recultivated, re, um, restarted 
relationships that I had that might benefit me in the entrepreneurial space. So that's one thing. So reconnected, generated a list of about 200 people that I knew I needed to say, hey, I'm transitioning into this new world. I'm going to do it full time. Can we have an opportunity to collaborate? That's one thing. The other thing is I did actually take an entrepreneurship class because I wanted to make sure that I understood the science of the work. And so I took an entrepreneurship class that helped me learn the game. The other thing that I did was I stacked my loot. I stacked money so I didn't have this scarcity mindset when I branched out to be like, oh my God, I got to jump back in the game because I don't have enough money. So I stacked enough money to be very comfortable. Uh, and uh, I didn't really know this at first, but man, I just spent, I, so I had an opportunity to, to, to experience Dame, Dame Dash about three hours a couple of weeks ago. And um, just the belief in yourself and to understand that you're going to have these hills and valleys, but to still just be consistent and keep believing in yourself and try to have righteous steps. I don't think you can really lose, man. I don't think you really lose. Modify your lifestyle a little bit, you know, but I don't think you can really lose. Okay, but you know, you mentioned you know you stacked your loot up, so that kind of already. I'm I'm telling you, I have this already written down. You just kind of setting the stage for me though. But for brothers that are looking to take that leap financially, how do you know when you're really financially ready to do that? Because like once you call it a day and they throw you that going away party, that's it. Ain't no coming back. So how do you know when you're financially ready to really jump jump in? I think for me on a practical level, for me, it was six to eight months. That was just the number that I made up. How did I get that number? I don't really know, but I just knew I needed enough loot. But I also, again, I took the the entrepreneurship class. So I did some real serious forecasting and I also cultivated and took a small on-ramp before I jumped out on my own. So it was very strategic, you know, Uh, but I think you need to determine is your income going to sustain the lifestyle that you want. Uh, I think that's one thing. And then do you have enough savings to last through the downtime? So I think it's just a couple of basic questions you got to answer. And I also think it's a matter of preparation, you know, eliminating debt, uh, those kinds of things that, you know, all of those things are crucial. Mm, okay. Yeah. Great information. Cause you said six to eight months. So are you saying six to eight months, meaning collectively all of your bills per month for six to eight months or just the yeah, mortgage? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, all of your like all of your bills that are mandatory. Yeah, I, I mean, those bills. Yeah, the stuff that you got to pay. Are you enjoying yourself on Black Men Sundays, brother? Hey, man, I'm having a great time. I'm ex- I'm so excited that you all actually uh, took the initiative and had the vision and the courage to do this and to keep it going. And I just think it's so important because you never know who you're going to touch. And so kudos and respect to what you all do. And I'm definitely a fan. So much respect, man. Much respect. Yeah, definitely. But let me ask you this question, man, because, you know, I get I get people in my community that why is it called Black Men Sundays? Why can't it be called All Men Sundays? You know, Sundays with Corey. Why does it have to be called Black Men Sundays? I said, well, I didn't see a problem with it. But why do you think and really, why do you know? But why do you think that there's a problem with the word black men and then we tie it to Sundays. Like, why is that such a negative thing? Hey man, I'm telling you, I just spent three hours with Dame Dash, man. And so you asking me the wrong question on the wrong day because I'm about to snap. Hey man, I told you I was warming the bus up. So I'm dry. We in drive now. We're going about 50. Let's go. Yeah, man. You already know, man. Hey, the black man is 
one of the most feared, the, the, the intelligent, strategic black man is one of the most feared species on the planet. And so the fact that we try to come together and engage and love on one another and build on one another on Sunday, which this society considered to be a holy day is just awesome. And like I said, my job is to slash the tires of white supremacy. And so when we talk about black men Sundays, that means we, we come together first to heal, number one, and then secondly, to elevate. And so, man, hey, too bad I don't use profanity on Sundays. I'm trying to be like Dion and I use profanity, but uh, yeah, they look at they caught me on a Sunday because I really go off. But man, they just can't, and, and yeah, they can't handle this, man. We too powerful. They cannot handle this. Mm, yeah, because I'm sitting here like, you know, this is a wealth finance generational wealth conversation. So what's the problem here? But I've noticed like since I've been doing this turkey drive, you know, you starting to hand those flyers out. You know, some people are kind of giving me a little kick. Like, ah, I don't know if I can sponsor you. I don't know if I can associate with you because of the name. I don't want other groups that mean other things to say, well, you let Black Men Sundays on. So you need to let, you know, another group do their thing as well. And that kind of threw me off guard because I'm like, okay, we're trying to give turkeys to 50 families in the city for free. You know how much turkeys cost with inflation? Hey, man. Hey, they said the same thing about the Black Panthers. And, and people model their uh, support structures after the Black Panthers. Some of the same work that you're doing in terms of free food and those kinds of philanthropic things. Uh, even when I wrote my book, they kept saying, well, why do you have to call it about Black men? Because when we get pulled over and we Black, we got the same problem. That's why, you know? And then, man, all money ain't good money. So, you know, if some of those people don't want to support, hey, man, we get it back another way. Definitely, man. And I was going to say, man, jumping, I'm going I'm to come back to that in a sec, but I'm going to get back on some financial, on a financial tip. You know, you're a family man. Um, You own any properties? Interesting. So, uh, I first got beat up like, like, man, <laughs> was that like, was that 98 when the big crash happened or right around 98, whatever time that was, man, I bought so much property. I was buying it like it was monopoly. And uh, I wasn't wise enough to, un to be very thoughtful about where I bought the property and the ability for the property to grow or not. And, you know, they, they had all those balloon loans and all of that kind of stuff. So I got caught up. Long story short, I actually had to file bankruptcy. And so it really threw me for a loop. So I've learned the game. Now I have investment property. I mean, I have vacation property. That's all I have right now. But I'm looking for other property investments, but just being very thoughtful about the value. Obviously, I have my personal home, um, but I've moved from city to city too. So, uh, but yeah, so I have my home. I have some vacation property, but I've also become smarter about investment properties. Definitely. You do any... Uh... You do any stocks, any bonds, any any of that? I hear the bonds are back now. Well, you know what? I haven't yet, man. I'm really trying to figure out how to uh, how to diversify what I do. But I know one of the questions is really how do you uh, you know generate uh, how do you create generational wealth? But I was uh, he beat me to it. He beat me. Yeah, to yeah, me. That yeah. was my next question. Come on, I ain't even got to yeah, ask yeah. it now. Go ahead, brother. I thought about this a lot, and I don't know if you all saw this Forbes article where uh, this. Uh, family bought a Basquiat painting for $19,000 in 1984, and they sold it for $110 million. 
let me say it again. They invested 19,000 in 1984. And a few years ago, they made $110 million off of one piece of art. Wow. Just sit on that. And so, and so that really has kind of reshaped me thinking about investments and how I invest my money. And so I've really started to educate myself about the art collection game, taking classes, being a student of the work, being a student of different artists, investing big and small, um, and really thinking about ways to set my family up for generational wealth. Yeah, because really, I mean, really, that's what this show is all about. It's about setting up generational wealth because, you know, we've had several guests on that say, you know, by 2053, you know, the black wealth is going to be almost to zero unless we collectively come together and create. So that's, and that's another reason why I made this podcast as well. I mean, without even knowing that statistic, I was, I just made the podcast because I'm tired of hearing brothers say, Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. Okay. What well, you know now. So if you not following these teachings, it's just on you. So, but you know, as we try to combat this wealth gap and obviously in years past, you know, with the, you know, uh, systematic issues, with the redlining and things of that sort. Um, so, you know, we're still playing catch up. You know, a lot of people don't really get that. They just think, okay, we're all on the same page from birth and we just take off at a race and we're just running a hundred, but it's not that you're like, you know, they can, they kind of have like an advantage. So I'm yeah. saying like for us now to achieve generation, well, cause I, I really believe you can't blame it on other races. Now you have the internet, there's too many avenues of entrepreneurship out there to say, oh, I don't have any opportunities. So what do you say to that? Well, the old Kanye said racism still alive. They just be concealing it. And so I think that uh, we do still have, have obstacles. Uh, we don't have excuses, but we still do have obstacles. And I think we need to be aware of those. But I also think we, like you are alluding to, we do have opportunities and we can we have easier access to information. I don't know if we have easier access to capital or credit, but we still may have access to information. And people say knowledge is power. That's one of the biggest lies ever told. Knowledge is not power. Just because you have knowledge doesn't mean you have power. I mean, you know, I mean, with if you want to maintain power, you need some knowledge. Trump dumbass didn't have uh, knowledge. Not in my opinion anyway, but that's a whole nother story. Um, yeah, man, you made me forget what I was even talking about, man. You making me hot over here, man. Hey, welcome to Black Men Sundays, brother. You here? Yeah. Now. Man. So yeah. now, finish, finish what you were saying, though. You were saying, um, you know, you were obviously you mentioned Trump. I thought that was like okay, but you yeah, know, I said anybody back, but yeah, um, yeah go ahead. But, but the thing, but 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 the thing is, you was going into the fact of knowledge itself is not power i think you i think you're trying, trying to go to the fact the way yeah, yeah. you use the knowledge is where the powers absolutely lie. right correct? absolutely right yeah uh my my undergrad degree was in industrial engineering and one of the things we talk about is the difference between uh, potential power and basically kinetic power or potential energy and kinetic energy and so potential energy is that stuff that yeah it can go but you ain't hit the go button yet you know what I'm saying? And then you actually have the kinetic energy. That's when you actually move and do something. So just because you got knowledge, that's potential energy. You got to make it happen. 
And so uh, I do think we have not, it's a, look at all the stuff we're getting on the internet. That doesn't mean we do, we have the opportunity to do enough with it. Uh, I mean, we can, yeah, we can. Sounds good. Let's talk about the energy of Florida. You know, our governor, um, you know, as, as I see you have books behind you, but you know, and I see that, you know, obviously you were in the education system, high level education system. What's your perspective on a governor uh, taking books off the shelf that are needed to aid our community? Needed to aid our community, needed to give uh, students and older people an opportunity to see themselves in text, uh, an opportunity for us to see the world in a fuller, from a fuller point of view an opportunity to, to affirm our identity as black people and our accomplishments, an opportunity to connect kids to literacy in ways that they might not be interested in, an opportunity for racism to thrive and for them to try to keep the truth away from us, to keep us down, an opportunity for even to keep white folks uh, uh, unaware of what's going on. And uh, I, uh, I teach a class at the university called Literacy, Language, Pedagogy, and Power, and next week, my topic is banned books. Oh, I cannot wait to hit it. Oh, I'm so excited. But Florida, y'all suck. Uh, but it's not that much difference uh, in Missouri or anywhere else. Uh, yeah, these races are racing right about now. You know, I just made that word up. But these races are racing uh, right now, man. So uh, it's important that we have uh, media and opportunities like this to try to interrupt some of this, man. So I respect and appreciate what you guys are doing, man. Yeah, definitely. Well, that ties right into my next question. Do you believe that potentially these books are being taken away as a way to preserve generational poverty and diminish generational wealth for Black people from a historic perspective? Um, there, There's always been intentional efforts to keep us where we are. Whether you talk about COINTELPRO, whether you talk about how they pimp Freeway Rick Ross to be the point person for all of the pretty much all of the drugs that came to the United States. Um, so, so I don't doubt any deliberate uh, activity on behalf of the United States government. I honestly don't think these dumbasses that smart though. Uh, I don't think they really have that ability to even think that for. I think they're. I think they're. Uh, it's 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 a need to preserve uh, what exists. And preserve uh, whiteness and white supremacy, but I don't think it's. Uh, I don't think they're. Yeah, I don't think they're that smart. That's all. Uh, bottom line. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I just figured. You know, I take it there because I just feel like as we go, a lot of new laws and things of sort are coming out that are really attacking the education system. You know what? Yeah. And, and and I think you're right about that. <laughs> and maybe they are that smart because they are creating policies and procedures. I mean, they are tattooing this in the fabric of our society. And so uh, it's systematic uh, racism is really what it is, because it, it is part of the system. Uh, and, uh, you know, and it just causes so many different contradictions. For example, you know, in some ways, charter schools give black and brown leaders the opportunity to do some things that are creative, that are different, that are outside of the traditional box. However, there might be some other ways that charters might be problematic. And so there are just so many contradictions uh, around all of this stuff, you know. 
Yeah, man. And, you know, you, you come to us, uh, you know, highly decorated, man, you know, founding, worked in Memphis as the founding managing director of the Parent Leadership and Advocacy Institute, which is a nonprofit empowering parents to influence change. Yep. Let's talk about that for a little bit, because I feel like a lot of times, you know, we drop the kids off, but and then we expected the teachers to do most of the work. But how what ways can we empower parents? There are so many ways. I think one is to make sure they're aware of the current reality. So on a smaller scale, are you very clear about what your child is doing? And do you understand all of the in intricacies by which the child is being assessed, graded, those kinds of things, uh, promoted? So I think one is the, the, the individual. The next piece is the school. Do you really understand how well the school is or is not doing? And do you understand the issues and the structures? So I'm talking about parent awareness first. So I think the awareness piece is important. Then you need to think about at the state level, how are decisions or at the, even the, the school board level, how are decisions made? Uh, who do they benefit and who do they not benefit? Then I think you need to be thinking about federal and state legislation. So just the awareness piece, but then the other part is the empowerment piece. And so how do we equip parents? Because there's a uh, science to uh, making change. There are some practices, some protocols, some structures that you can use to empower change. Barack Obama used uh, a protocol called, it was called pub, the public narrative is what it is. And it, it's a tried and true political communication strategy that organizations use. The point that I'm making is simply this. We can engage and inform parents and help parent, teach parents how to use those strategies so they can make change uh, in real ways. So the first part is the awareness piece, getting people pissed off, helping them understand the reality, then empowering them to actually make change, but not lead them toward change or try to guide them in ways that they think they have agency, but they really don't, because that's what happens a lot of times in education. But to actually give them power to define what liberation looks like for them, then we have we create schools that can allow their visions to actually take place. And that's just a complex thing to make happen. Before I let you go, man, you know, I definitely want to talk about the Memphis Lift, you know, um, a powerful parent organization. Let's talk about the impetus of that and just what advice would you give parents based off the information that you learned from developing the Memphis Lift? Yeah, so so I came into the 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 inception of the Memphis Lift. It was brought to the community that I was serving by uh, a couple other organizations and a couple other leaders. But I came in at the bottom floor, and uh, part of my job was to develop the educational programming for them. I'm a teacher. That's who I am. And so part of my job was to, again, I just talked about that awareness. I talked about those tactical skills that they could use. So part of my role was to do that. Uh, there are so many political pieces uh, when it comes to uh, guiding parents, uh, because I think there's some BS in the game. I think there are times when some organizations uh, lead parents in ways uh, and mislead parents that think they actually are in control. That's really the point that I want to make about that. I think, again, it is empowering parents for what purpose? And so Memphis Lift is a parent-led organization that is really an independent, autonomous thinking body. Um, it takes a while to get to that point, especially when you're financed with uh, 
other people's money. And so I think when we talk about, even when we talk about making change and stuff like that, where the money comes matters, where the money comes from matters. And so we need to be thoughtful about the ways that the money can manipulate and guide the movement, even with parent organizations. Uh, but Memphis Lift, uh, led by an awesome uh, uh, group of people, especially a sister by the name of uh, Sarah Carpenter. But I think that just to finish up, the thing that I've learned the most is all we got to do is help parents with some of the technical skills to lead organizations. After that, they got it. Parents can do whatever they need to do. Sometimes in black and brown communities, we underestimate the power of parents, especially if they don't necessarily have the education level that we have. Parents got it. They just need a little support. We need to be with and not to. Wow. There you have it, Dr. Ian e. Buchanan. I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on Black Men's Sundays. I know I asked you before, but did you enjoy the full experience of Black Men's Sundays, my brother? Hey, man, I'm uh, inspired by the work that you all are doing, man. This is a big deal. Uh, and uh, it means a lot to have the invitation. So I appreciate just being part of this kind of tapestry that you all are weaving. And, and I just want to just encourage you all to not underestimate the historical importance of what you all are doing. Wow. Great information. I appreciate that. My brother it means so much to me. You, you touched me in the heart when you said that, you know, and I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. Enjoy the rest of your day and enjoy the rest of your week, my brother. Appreciate you. Take good yeah. care. It's a black man's son.